The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It is very premature to be thinking about pausing. So people, when they hear lags, they think about, about a pause. It's very premature, in my view, to, to, to think about or be talking about pausing our rate hike. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell looks to put an end to market speculation of a pivot or a pause, saying the hiking cycle still has far to go as he takes rates to levels not seen since 2008. Well, stocks and the bond market are reacting strongly, Wall Street turning negative on the hawkish statement, erasing earlier gains while Treasury yields push higher. China's zero COVID policy continuing to choke its economy as services activity falls in October to its lowest level since May. Ukraine's First Lady Olena Zelenska makes an impassioned plea, telling me here at Web Summit that countries must put aside self-interest and continue supporting Ukraine in its war against Russia. Assistance will stop. We will be in great danger. That's why I want everybody to hear this. So much effort and so much work has been done from all these countries. And to stop now, it means that everything that has been done before was for nothing. So, very good morning, everybody. Very good morning, Steve. Good morning. How, How are you? Mini yeah. break. It was nice. Yeah, good. Getting yeah. a few days off was nice. Yeah, down by the beach. Uh, yes, yeah. I had some time by the uh, beach here Did in the UK. Did it make you pontificate on the meaning of life and markets <laughs> and monetary policy? Did you think a all lot that, about Fed pivots that. and all that kind of thing? I, and I wondered about <laughs> what kind of taxes we're going to face uh, when ultimately <laughs> yeah, it's Rishi a, Sunak it, delivers it's this soon package. soon changed in the UK, didn't yes, it? Yes, it But has. things calmed down a bit when the grown-ups got back in charge of number 10 and 11. Yeah, let's see what that ultimately means for all of us in terms of our pocketbook. Let's have a look at BNP Paribas then. The third quarter numbers are just coming through here. So let's give you, give you these figures. Group revenue in at 12.31 billion uh, euros. That's up by 8% from a year ago. Operating expenses in at 7.86 billion, up 6% from a year ago. The net income attributable to equity holders at 2.76 billion. That is up 10.3% from a year ago. The group pricing risk up by 34.1 percent at 947 million the common equity tier one ratio standing at 12.1 percent which is um let's have a look down compared to 30th of june uh 2022 at 12.2 percent but is uh, ballpark um in terms of some of the other lines global banking down 7.9 percent in the third quarter but uh, revenue up in FIC trading 25.5% in the third quarter and uh, up by 3.3% in equity trading. So even as some of these banks are reporting challenging conditions in markets and the impact as a result of that, um, in this story, what we're hearing is an improvement in the uh, FIC trading line. Um, Charlotte spoke to the BNP Paribas CFO Lars Machinal and asked which of the French lenders units had shown strength during the period. The third quarter shows indeed a solid performance of basically all divisions. If you look at the top line, they increased by 8%. They clocked in at 12 billion euros. And so they reflected the continued development of our clients' business activities. Moreover, excellent control of operating expenses despite the inflationary context, so with positive jaws. Positive jaws, two points, 
and positive across all business lines. And the bottom line, clocked in at that shy of 2.8 billion, up 10% compared to a year ago. And so basically this is a tribute to the implementation of our plans called GTS 2025. Right, just to say, we know that you, the viewers, want to talk about the Federal Reserve as well, and we shall at length throughout the show, but we've got so many great CEOs and CFOs uh, lined up this morning. We're going to talk to them as well to get an educated view on the market, including from ING, which has just posted third quarter net results of 979 million euros, announced additional distribution to shareholders. Uh, the profit before tax was 1.4 billion euros in the third quarter. CET One Rio share remains strong according to the group at 14.7. Um, I'll give you one or two more quick ones. Let's have a look. What else have we got? Net interest income, 3.3 billion euros versus 3.39 a year ago. Tanate Thutukral, uh, uh, joins us now. He's the CFO of ING. Tanate, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, look, a lot of people in your business have been hoping for higher interest rates for a long time. Now they are here. What is it doing to the business model? Good morning, sir. Hi, good morning. Very nice to be on your show. I think we are very uh, confident about the performance that we had in Q3. And that if you take out some one or two incidental items, our net interest income is rising and it's rising for the very reason you mentioned. It's rising on the back of sharply higher interest rate curve that we see in the eurozone and so our year-on-year -year underlying net interest income is up about eight percent year-on-year so that's what we see in our results today apart from that to give you a bit of uh, other line items that we have fee income remains resilient despite what we see in the capital markets and that our costs are under control but i think the most important thing that we see is that our loan portfolio remain resilient with low non-performing loan ratio, I think one of the lowest in the Eurozone at 1.3%. Yeah, you preempted my next question as well. It was the loan quality in a rising rate environment that I and many have great concerns about. So you're, you're keeping that under control. That's your job, especially as the CFO as well. Any warning signs there though for, for your company and indeed the broader industry? Well, I, I think if you look at the, um, this particular coming recession, and we do predict a, a recession somewhat milder in our home market of the Netherlands and a bit more sharp in Germany. But I think you have to put that into the context that this recession is happening where employment remains very tight, right? If you look at vacancy rates, that has remains very high. And I think that bodes well, particularly in the retail banking sector where unemployment level drives a bit uh, loan loss performance. So I think we will have a recession, but it, it should be a mild one given that uh, vacancies are low. Tanate, can we talk a little bit then about um, underlying banking business? What is consumer behavior and business behavior like at the moment when it comes to expanding the loan book for the coming quarter? Yeah, we, we do see that loan growth continues to grow in the third quarter, both in retail banking and wholesale banking. But you can see the velocity and the pace of that growth beginning to slow. You know, I think affordability, the absolute price of mortgages are rising. So that means that uh, ability to buy homes is less than what it was a year ago. So we do see slowing growth maybe uh, a less confident um, levels in the wholesale bank. But overall, I think given what we've seen in the last three to four months, I think it, it's still quite satisfactory.
Can I ask you, in terms of the, the loans that you are making at this point, are you tightening the conditions required to achieve those loans? To what extent are you taking measures both to uh, protect the bank and to protect consumers? Our, our credit standards are roughly the same as it was before, which is already anticipating some of this slowdown. But of course, we are much more cognizant about affordability of loans, particularly in retail banking and in certain segments in wholesale banking. So I think our, our, we remain disciplined in our uh, risk management function. And we're, we're quite confident about where we stand from a loan management perspective. Tanate, is the ECB woefully behind the curve, given what we're seeing out in the United States and the other central banks? Uh, clearly, you know, we have seen something quite unprecedented from the ECB in the third quarter, going from minus uh, 50 basis point to 175. You know, that that is um, quite a sharp move for 150, I'm sorry. And I, I think they are going to have to follow what the Fed is doing last night by sharply rising rates again. Right. So I think that trajectory is clear. And uh, from a banking perspective, what we like is, is no, no sudden big moves. But suddenly that seems to be uh, something that we had to manage during the third quarter. Uh, and sorry, just a quick follow up to Nati. I'm fascinated by what you said there. Can Europe with um, can Europe stand large rate rises given um, the concerns we have about the fragility of the European economy? I think it can. I think the, the key primary role for the ECB, and we are very much supportive of that, is that inflation needs to be controlled. And, you know, the rising interest rate, the fact that top line inflation is not yet slowing, that is needed to be controlled first. And our indication is still that the impact on the economy, the impact on a possible recession is still at a relatively manageable level. Very good to see you today, sir. Thank you very much indeed for taking all our questions. I think your answers, especially on credit quality and indeed what the ECB needs to do, totally fascinating, sir. Thank you. Tanate Thutrakul, who is the CFO of ING. So we've already heard it from one CFO mm. already this morning. Mm. They need to move aggressively and but follow the Fed. It's very interesting, though, how comfortable it seems the um, CEOs of European banks are at the moment with credit quality. Are they? That's I interesting, because so. a lot of those CEOs of European banks at the moment are yeah. trading on a price to book of 0.3 to 0.5 as well. Mm. So the market is saying, despite their wonderful comfort zone sitting in their Chesterfield sofas, yeah. the fact is the market doesn't <laughs> believe the, the, the value of their book compared to what they think is worth. Chesterfield sofas. I don't know, something lovely and plush and yeah. comfortable, I was thinking <laughs> of. Love, lovely and plush. Uh, I wonder if the um, uh, head of the Fed has a Chesterfield sofa. Almost the certainly. Federal Reserve has, uh, I'm sure he has lots of leather furniture. <laughs> Um, and and leather-bound books. <laughs> Indeed, the Federal Reserve <laughs> has uh, raised interest rates, as you know, by 75 basis points for the fourth time in a row, moving its benchmark rate to 3.75 to 4%. That is the highest level since 2008. U.S. equities whipsawing as traders took new language in the Fed statement on the pace of increases as a sign of a dovish pivot. Well, well let, let me just read this what first. New language? Let me just read it first no, and why, then we'll dissect it. But staged a route once Chair Jay Powell said the terminal rate will likely be higher than previously thought, sending the Dow on a thousand point intraday swing. 
So let's, um, let's just delve into this. So the new language then, you don't think there was new language? Oh, the, the, the new language was, you guys are, are, are underestimating us. That's pretty much right. what he said. The new language was, suggests that, that, well, you just read it there, <laughs> suggests the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than expected, right? But he also said, so that was hawkish, and he said data since our last meeting suggests the ultimate level will be higher than expected. That was new language. Uh, or higher, more uh, dovish, uh, um, um, uh, hawkish, a big pardon. Yeah. But on the dovish side, the time is coming when less aggressive rates may come. It may come as soon as the next meeting or the one after that. Well, we were expecting 50 <laughs> the next meeting. Mm. Um, and so it could already be on the cards for the next meeting, what people already expected. But I've never thought of the appropriate test for uh, slowing the pace of increases as being seeing inflation figures decisively coming down for several months in a row. There's mm. other things. He's also taking into account the cumulative tightening uh, with the lags in which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation. So on another day, the market could have completely read and said, oh, wow, they're talking about a lower pace going forward and we don't need to see continual um, lower inflation prints in order yep. to do that. And we know that they're taking into consideration the fact that we've already hiked a, a hell of a lot as well. W what's so different? Nothing's changed. We haven't got a new SEP. Uh, no, uh, well, we've got another guest, so I don't have time to answer you, but we'll, oh. come, we'll come back to the conversation. Apparently, we are going to have time to do this. Uh, Jerome Powell signalled a slowdown in the speed of tightening, but a higher final destination in his press conference after that decision. At some point, as I've said in the last two press conferences, uh, it will become appropriate to slow the pace of increases as we approach the level of interest rates that will be sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to our 2% goal. There is significant uncertainty around that level of interest rates. Even so, we still have some ways to go. And incoming data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. Our decisions will depend on the totality of incoming data and their implications for the outlook for economic activity and inflation. We will continue to make our decisions meeting by meeting and communicate our thinking as clearly as possible. Well, as I say, we'll come back to this conversation, but we do have them stacking up a bit like Heathrow Airport on a wet Wednesday. So ADECO has reported third quarter results in line with forecasts with a stronger dollar helping revenues rise by more than 15% in the year to just over 6 billion euros. Uh, Coram Williams is the CFO of ADECO Group. Coram, good morning to you. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Let me just give you a moment, really, just to map out for us how you think the quarter went. So, um, good morning. Very nice to be back. Uh, it was a strong quarter for us. So, you mentioned the reported growth of 16%, obviously a little bit of help from currency, but actually in terms of underlying like-for-like -like growth, it was 6% in the quarter, which is the strongest growth that we've posted all year. This has been the strongest quarter that we've had uh, with a very strong performance in our workforce solutions business in ADECO, where we actually grew faster than our peers in Q3. And that's a reflection of the investment that we've been making in the business. Lower down the P&L, uh, an EBITA margin of 3.6, which is solid. So we're very happy uh, with the performance in Q3. A little bit about that investment. Um, are, do you feel that you're investing into what is likely to be a pronounced slowdown now in most of the markets that you operate in? You would have heard us just talking about the Federal Reserve's intention to carry on hiking interest rates. At what point do you think labour market trends begin to seriously crack? 
Well, look, there is macroeconomic uncertainty out there. There's, there's no question about that. But, but there are a couple of interesting points. Firstly, the economic environment that we see around the, around the world, and we operate, as you know, in 60 different countries, is not uniform. There are plenty of areas where there's still growth, plenty of sectors uh, which are doing well right now. But also, and you mentioned it, the labor market is really still very dynamic. We've got talent scarcity, got skills gaps, uh, we've got wage inflation. It's actually driving healthy demand for our services as a, as a talent business. And that means that the investment that we've made is actually generating good returns. We've seen an acceleration of growth momentum in our ADECO business every quarter. So, you know, we're very cognizant of what's happening out there. We're managing the business with agility, but the labor market and the talent market is still a very dynamic market, driving healthy, healthy demand for us. Good morning, Karim. You just alluded to something that's fascinating for all of us, wage inflation. How hot is the way? I mean, there's always wage inflation. No one moves for a lesser salary. Well, not if they can help it anyway. Uh, what is the wage inflation moment and how hot is it and how much of a risk is that to monetary policy? So, I mean, this has been a feature over the last three or four quarters, and I think we've talked about it before. This, um, the talent scarcity, the gaps in skills, companies who are really looking to fill particular areas, particular specialisms, it is driving inflation, and it has been over the last 12 months. It's still fairly hot. So, you know, on average across the business, it's mid to high single digits. It's slowed a little bit between Q2 and Q3, but it's still very much a feature of the market. So let me get this right. High single digits, that, that, and that is on the demand side rather than on the supplier side, I, I guess, really, coming across. The, 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 again, I'll ask you the same questions I asked the CFO of ING. We've got a problem here on uh, interest rates being woefully too low in Europe, haven't we? I'm not sure that I can really make comments on, on interest rates, but you know, in terms of the macroeconomic environment, I think the driver for us is what's happening in terms of the talent market. And the talent scarcity, skills gaps, wage inflation, it's all driving pretty strong demand. And we are very agile in terms of the way that we're going after that. I don't know why you can't talk about interest rates. You're a very smart man. You're a CFO. You must have a view, Coram. Well, I, you know, I think the central bankers are, are managing inflation in the way that they think is appropriate. Um, from our perspective, you know, I have to manage the business. We're making the most of the opportunities that we see. Uh, Coram, let me just ask you a broader question about um, geographical strength, geographical weakness, because I think we're all trying to second guess the resilience or the likelihood of recession for some of these markets based on how companies like yours are faring in those geographies. How do you see it? I mean, it, it is different uh, by region. So, you know, if we look, for example, at our Asian business, it's very strong, posting double-digit growth. We look at Latin America, that's also very strong. There is, in macroeconomic terms, a slowdown, particularly in, in Europe also in North America. But actually, and this comes back to the point I was making at the beginning, the investments that we've made, the fact that there are certain sectors, even in the European countries or the American or America, which are growing, actually allows us to really go after those opportunities and make the most of them. So there are differences. It's not uniform, but there's still plenty of opportunity for growth. I'll give you an example. France, which is our biggest market, we grew 7% 
in Q3. That's faster than the market. It reflects the investments that we've made, but it shows you there is still plenty of opportunity in, in the uncertain times in which we live. Does, just briefly, does that reflect companies are shelving permanent positions and moving to contract staff? I think contract staff are always part of the answer. When you're managing an uncertain economic environment, when you're uh, juggling some of the sort of supply chain issues that people have, then temporary staffing is part of the answer. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of the puzzle that big companies use. It's a very important part of the labor market. Generally speaking, and I, you know, I've said this already, but it's a very dynamic market. Skills shortages, skills gaps, people are really focused on making sure that they've got the staff that they need to do what they need to do. Coram, always good to see you. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, Coram Williams, the CFO of ADECO Group. Uh, Russia has agreed to restart its involvement in the Black Sea grain export deal with Ukraine just days after pulling out. The Russian Defence Ministry says it was given assurances by Ukraine that the corridor would not be used for military activity after citing an alleged Ukrainian attack on its naval fleet as the reason for cancelling the deal. Well, the Ukrainian First Lady, Elena Zelenska, has told CNBC the country would face severe danger if international aid was stopped and that further military assistance is required. And Obviously, Karen, that um, is fascinating coming on the back of apparently what turned into quite a tetchy conversation between her husband and President Biden over requests for further aid. So tell us a bit more uh, about what the First Lady of Ukraine had to say. Good morning. Well, Jeff. Good morning. It's not the usual conversation you're expecting to have here at Web Summit. You know, this is an event for investors, technology startups. But that said, it is a huge event, 70,000 people on the ground. And it is a platform for Ukraine to talk about what is happening in the crisis. So it was an interview conducted under very heavy security. Uh, Olena Zelenska turns up with uh, many guarding her. And also, this is not meant to be a political interview. But if you just think about the context, uh, this is a woman who has been uh, pushed into a position where she is having to defend her country, defend her family, defend her loved ones. And she has been a very important voice out there in the international community calling for more support. Um, the conversation was meant to be one about humanitarian aid. And there's an Olena Zelenska Foundation that she's recently just set up. She's specifically looking for more aid for education, for medicines, for food, but uh, the conversation naturally just strays into areas around weapons, around international support. So we touched on many different issues here. And uh, the, the fact is uh, that uh, Elena Zelensky says that, you know, the normal protocols around her role as First Lady have certainly changed because of war. So we spoke about the challenge in the upcoming winter months. She says more aid is required because that will pose an additional challenge. We mentioned uh, what was taking place on the food side and as she's been calling for aid, I did press her about the situation for other poor nations with this stop-start grains deal and the access to grains at a certain price that is very much a challenge for poverty-stricken nations. But she is still urging international support to stay, to remain, saying it would be dangerous if that started to wane. We also spoke about the challenge. Don't forget the country has been attacked recently, uh, again, further in capital cities, but specifically around critical infrastructure.
infrastructure. And uh, the president recently was talking about 40 percent of the country's entire energy infrastructure being seriously damaged by Russian attacks, by missile strikes, by drone attacks. So this is quite critical as we talk about access for the country to certain infrastructure. But uh, the call was there in the conversation we had for more weapons, in particular an air defense system. But uh, first up, just take a listen to the conversation. I did ask Olena Zelenska whether she was concerned about international support waning, given the food, energy crisis, inflation and even change at a political level. Let's take a listen. A country's domestic problems are always the priority for them. What happened to Ukraine touched everybody. We can feel a strong support from everyone. But if assistance will stop, we will be in great danger. That's why I want everybody to hear this. So much effort and so much work has been done from all these countries. And to stop now, it means that everything that has been done before was for nothing. We have to fight until the very end. And I hope that all the help won't stop. I was thinking, unfortunately, there is an increase of support each time there is a tragedy, like in Bucha and after the liberation of Izium. I don't want that to happen for us to get more support. And just finally then, can I be clear about what more the West can do to help Ukraine? I understand that these are outside the duties of First Lady, but we're already outside the normal protocols because of the war. Ukraine needs more weapons, more military assistance. We need safe towns, we need safe cities. We need anti-missile and anti-raid defense. We want to take our children to school without fear, without worrying that a missile will strike us any time. We need weapons for our soldiers to fight, and it all comes. We are very grateful for that. Imagine this scenario. We are in the situation where there are three people drowning, and they only are given one life jacket. We don't need one. We need three floats. We need assistance to survive and to fight. Lena Zelenska, they're explaining there are a long list of requirements still to help out Ukraine. And that's part of the tension uh, Jeff's just mentioned there, the fight between Biden or the argument between Biden and Zelensky earlier in the week that there's already been significant support from the Americans, but more is required. And that is the sad state of affairs in the in the country. Just one quick one. Social media, we touched on that. And the view is from the Ukrainian first lady that this has been a, a powerful force for them to tell their story, to get it out to the world. Back to you in the studio. Karen, that is excellent work and fascinating to me, uh, Mrs. Zelenska. Well done there. Right, OK, coming up on the show, we're going to speak to the uh, Solvay CFO, Karim Hajar, as the Belgian chemicals group confirms strong growth in the third quarter. There's a thematic here so far, isn't there? From Solvay, from ADECO, from ING. Maybe Europe's not quite as bad as we thought, everybody. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. It is very premature to be thinking about pausing. So people, when they hear lags, they think about, about a pause. It's very premature, in my view. To, to, to think about or be talking about pausing our rate hike. We Fed Chairman Jerome Powell looks to put an end to market speculation of a pivot or a pause, saying the hiking cycle still has far to go as he takes interest rates to levels not seen since 2008. Well, the reaction to that, stocks and the bond market were impacted, Wall Street turning negative on the hawkish statement erasing earlier gains, Treasury yields pushing higher. 
BNP Paribas beat expectations as market volatility fuels trading revenues and rising interest rates helps net income. However, CFO Lars Machinel telling CNBC the wider macro outlook is still uncertain. There are several headwinds that are ahead of us. What we will have in 23, I would call, is a look-through kind of situation. So we anticipate that in the duration, the pickup and the return to a normalized kind of situation will be rather 24, 25. And ING has reported third quarter total income below a year ago, but has announced a new share buyback. The CFO, Tanate Futterkal, tells this program the Dutch lender expects a slowdown. We do predict a, a recession, somewhat milder in our whole market of the Netherlands and a bit more sharp in Germany. But I think you have to put that into the context that this recession is happening where employment remains very tight. thoughtful piece from our old friend Paul Donovan in the FT today, Jeff. And I have, I've only had a quick look at it, and I'll read it properly later, on. But it's the Fed should make clear that rising profit margins are spurring inflation. And it got me thinking, and it's got me thinking again after looking at the BMW thing, figures, mm. because we've had third quarter from BMW, where the headline figure from them is that EBIT margin at the automotive unit, and we know that they make a lot of money from other things, but yeah. automotive is key for OEMs as well, is 8.9% versus 7.8% a year prior. Now, mm. that hasn't done much for the shares. As you can see, they've been rather soggy this year as well, and they still trade at a pathetically low PE of plus five, in line with the sector, I hasten to add as well. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, if they can improve their profit margins in the current environment with concerns about supply chains and mm. energy supply chains and all, and, and all of the above as well, that's interesting that the profit margins are fattening. Is this as good as it gets, though? And I think we, we, I mean, it was the same narrative when we looked through the Volkswagen numbers last week, and there did seem to be quite an improvement around margin. And some of the profit lines looked look really quite interesting, and the revenue line was also up there. And then you looked at it again, and you thought, well, coming through the environment we've come through, where there's been a drought of semiconductors, and people have been told, yeah, you can order your car, but you're not going to have it for six months. And, and I think the EV business has also kind of stoked up demand here. The question you've got to ask yourself, though, is given how much these cars are sold on financing, what ultimately changes with the higher rates? Because you just you find it hard to believe that we will continue to see them flying out of the showrooms or off, off the internet um, as we see interest rates rise and people start to look at the, the consequences of that PCP balloon payment at the end. Yeah. Do you know what? We can carry this conversation on, but why don't we actually speak to a company that actually feeds into the automotive sector? That might help. That's a good idea. Let's get to Solvay. The chemicals <laughs> company has raised its full-year cash flow guidance from 750 million to around 1 billion euros. This comes as the company reports record sales in the third quarter, helped by higher prices. Uh, Karim Hajar joins us, the CFO of Solvay. Kareem, always good to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us. J just walk us through the numbers then from your perspective. How good were these? Well, good morning. Um, I've been the CFO of Solvay for over nine years, and these are the strongest set of results I've, I've seen in our company. You've talked about record sales. I can add record EBITDA margins, record earnings per share, record net income, record return on capital. Every single key indicator 
on our dashboard is, uh, is shining green. That's the fact. Now, the other good news here is that, yes, pricing is going up. I'm not going to say we're defying gravity, but we're certainly overcoming the very severe cost headwinds. But also the good news here is that we're also maintaining our volume so customers appreciate what we're bringing. And that growth, that stability, that resilience that I'm talking about is very broad based. It's across our key businesses. So we're very, very uh, pleased with that. And to your earlier comment, the auto industry and particularly our batteries for electric vehicles is powering ahead. So very, very strong performance there as well for our business. Yeah, so, so what are we missing here? Because we listen to the market and we listen to the market economists and they all sound so negative. And then we listen to you and we listen to other companies that are reporting for this quarter and everything seems to be getting better. So is this um, a shoe waiting to drop or are the economists looking in the wrong place? No, I think you've said it well. As I look at my order books for the next uh, two to three months, we do see moderation beyond normal seasonal factors. And all the news flow, all the news flow that we look at and the key indicators into next year suggest now I think the storms are ahead. So we're not going to wait for those waves to hit. We're anticipating, we're getting ready. And frankly, we think we're going to weather those storms very well. Um, even in a declining demand environment, we think we're going to do really well in holding on to our pricing and actually do pretty well from a demand point of view as well, probably for about three quarters of our portfolio. So we're ready. We're ready for the 2023 challenges. Jeff said, what are we missing? It's not just us. Your shares are trading on eight times forward, Karim, as well. Why are they only trading on eight times forward, less than the broader indices, if things sound as good as they are from your point of view? And I take on board everything you've said. Yeah. No, look, I agree with you. Uh, as an investor in Solvay, I think we were far more. And I really will. I, I really mean it. We're, we're frustrated with the share price. That said, the fact of the matter is we have outperformed all of our peer group, all the key indices that you can compare Solvay to, certainly for the last two to three years. So yes, in absolute terms, I know, I believe Solvay is worth more, but we're performing better than our peers. And that's certainly both the facts and what I'm hearing from investors. Do you know, Karim, though, if it was a year ago, the first thing you would have said to me is about your ESG credentials as well. No one ever says that to me uh, as the first or second answers to their questions now. Is it all back to being about profit and ESG has gone by the way? Absolutely not. ESG is part of our DNA. Sustainability is key. Every single key decision we make incorporates the cost of carbon, for example. One thing that I should mention, we've got record cash we're going to deliver this year, and that's despite planning to deliver record capex. A lot of it is for growth. And every single one of the 13 or 37 new projects we're gonna, we've initiated this year, every single one we've imputed the cost of CO2 at 100 euros a ton, even in the US where the cost of the market is zero. So no, this is very much part of doing business. We will not be in any way deviating from that commitment to deliver are on our commitments. It's, it's part of who we are, frankly. All right, Karim, thank no you for that. Um, look, another question that we have is about supply chains, shortening supply chains, uh, worrying about our security. And finally, the Germans woke up within the last year to the fact that they're getting all their energy from a dictatorship uh, with an authoritarian regime in Russia. Um, what about supply chains for the industry as well? Are you shortening them? Are you diversifying, sir? 
Well, we're already, already pretty diversified. In fact, what we did today is announce a very major investment for the uh, battery market in the US for electric vehicles, um, because that's after a major investment we announced earlier this year in Europe. So essentially what, what I'm saying is, Solvay is diversified and we're doubling down. We're creating major positions in uh, different geographies and I think our customers really appreciate that. So we're responding to the needs of the market really there. I think that's very exciting and I think it's very exciting what you're doing in the rare earth space at the moment as well, Kareem. But I just wanted to ask you, kind of related to Steve's question about the fact that you're now writing into contracts this energy cost escalator in Europe. Um, have you had any resistance from your major uh, partners to you putting this line in, which obviously gives you a, a certain amount of security, but I guess for them could look a little painful? I think it's a really important question. The fact of the matter is we are competing for business. We have to earn the right and be able to negotiate these clauses and we're managing it. Now, why is it? Because customers value the security of supply and they also recognize that by improving our margins or maintaining our profitability, what do we do? We reinvest and they need us to reinvest because supply demand dynamics into the medium term are pretty tight and they want Solvay, one of the leaders in the market, to continue to provide more capacity to meet their needs. So I think there's a very mature understanding of the merits of making sure we, uh, we preserve the profitability, we pass through the costs um, and deliver what they need. And that's what I'm seeing. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.